I learned recently that the shape of the Apostles' Creed was actually the primary structuring device that Calvin used in composing his institutes. Uh, it contains four parts, on the Father, on the Son, on the Holy Spirit, and on the Church. And his blueprint was the Apostles' Creed. It is an ancient creed, uh, but it is one which continues to deeply inform the content of our faith, even to this day. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of John. We bring our reading in John's Gospel to a close. Taking our New Testament reading from John chapter 21, verses 20 to the end. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thus far, the reading of God's word you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. The final oracle of judgment before the climactic oracle of salvation, which we'll turn our attention to next week. We're in the third and final cycle of Micah's cycles, and we take this morning our reading from chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. 
Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, attend your word with the riches of your blessing which come only from you. This word which you breathed out, even now breathe upon. Prepare our hearts to receive it aright. Posture us rightly. Attend my words, the meditation of my heart. Bless the work of my hands. I, as your servant, Lord, be pleased to do far more than anything we could think or expect. Display the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guard us in the face of despair, the attacks of the enemy, and this present darkness. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the recent book, The Splendid and the Vile, author Eric Larson gives an intimate look into the lives of Winston Churchill and his inner circle during the early days of World War II, when England was subject to constant bombing. The author presents the dark world that they inhabited, a world of lightlessness. Literally, they had to put out lights and sirens and constant fear and uncertainty. It was a dark world that they inhabited, both literally and figuratively, and perhaps for that reason, it was very striking to me how many of the daily joys continued on in that land. Meals were still shared. Husbands and wives still embraced. Winston continued to enjoy his drink and tobacco. There were engagements, there were weddings, and so on and so forth. Make no mistake, the darkness was thick over that land. But even for all that, it had not completely extinguished the light. Micah actually paints an even darker landscape than the Blitzkrieg, if you can believe it. Israel's leaders, both the formal political leaders and what we might call influencers today, the great ones, all of them had broken faith. They held the people in a thinly veiled contempt. And not only did they not seek their good, they actively exploited them. They had broken faith with their God and thus with the people. And this had created a culture of broken faith. Breaking faith was common, as common as rock and stone such that even the strongest bonds of society, friends, neighbors, 
husband, wife, parents, children, all of them came undone. And Micah feels this acutely. And perhaps you can relate. In fact, Micah uses the image of sitting alone in abject darkness to depict something of his sorry condition. And yet, it is not the darkness that is the most striking feature of this text. It is that he does not give way to despair. It is that God's servant is sustained in hope in the face of a very present darkness. For even in the face of the faithlessness of all, a faithful one remains. The God of Micah's salvation. There are some striking similarities between the portrait that Micah paints here and our own day. Leaders who have betrayed the trust of people. Social upheaval in the form of marriages and families dissolving. Confusion abounding on every side. And thus, it strikes a chord that Micah has hope. For Micah's hope is our hope. And if you can hear it and see it, our hope shines forth even more plainly than the light which burns before Micah's eyes. For the Lord Jesus Christ is the faithful one. It is the true vine. He is the true vine in the desert landscape of goodness all around us. He is the true son in the face of the treachery of one generation to the former. And he is the true light as this present darkness rages on all sides. And thus, whatever the depth of darkness that surrounds the people of God, it is true that we can say, and indeed it is true of what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, namely light and life and hope. And he is the same yesterday, today, and always. So we can consider this morning Micah's hope in the face of collapse, and that under three heads. First, Micah's longing. Second, Micah's loneliness. And third, Micah's light. You're welcome. First, Micah's longing, verses 1 through 4. Notice the attention he draws to his desire. The desire of his soul. He laments at the end of verse 1. There is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig. That my soul desires. He pictures himself as a man in a vineyard. Or an orchard. And it's an Eden-like scene in this respect. The arboreal imagery. Trees. Vines everywhere. And what does he long for? What you long for in a vineyard, what you long for in an orchard, you long for fruit. But the particular fruit that he longs for, he goes on to explain in the next verse. He says, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. He's longing for godliness. He's longing for a righteous figure. He's longing for one who does right, not when it's 
convenient, but always because he is right. He's longing for one who is not bent. The word translated godly literally is one who is faithful. He's looking for one who is faithful unto the Lord. He's looking for one who is faithful unto the Lord's covenant. He's looking for one who is faithful unto his brothers and sisters, his neighbor. And the next half of the line gives a slightly different angle on it. There's no one who does right. He's looking for someone who does right. He's looking for someone who does good. This is what his soul craves. This is what our soul craves. Micah issues a lament, not unlike the popular song, Where have all the good men gone? Where are all the gods? <laughs> Micah longs for this fig, but finds nothing. And it is an intense disappointment. And notice that there's two further aggravations to his disappointment. The first is the fact that he's in a vineyard. He's in an orchard. He's in a place where there should be life. In fact, orchards and vineyards give the impression of life, and yet there is no substance of life to be found. There is no nourishment. It'd be like walking into a restaurant that is open, ready to eat, and being told, I'm sorry, we have no food here. But you're a restaurant. That's why you exist. That's the only reason why you exist. You have no other existence except to give the people food. You're treacherous. The violation actually goes on worse than the restaurant's treachery because this is not a man-made institution. These are trees. These are vineyards. It is against nature for the tree not to give fruit. It is against nature for the vineyard not to produce the cluster. But there is nothing. The second aggravating factor to his longing is actually even worse. It's not a garden of life. It's a garden of death. He finds the garden filled with predators and thorns where there should be figs and grapes. Verse 2 ends, they all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. These are hunters, predators. Or verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge, thorns, thistles. Micah sums up the confused ache with verse 3, and he uses the Edenic handle, good and evil, to summarize the current leadership in Israel. Micah says the current leadership is good at one thing, namely evil. Verse 3, their hands are good at evil. Micah longs to find good, and the frustration of his ache is that he does find those who are good at evil. And that's maddening. That's exhausting. That's perplexing. Children, I think some of you have gardens. Or you've seen your parents garden or your grandparents garden. Have you ever seen a garden? Have you ever worked in a garden? So imagine you, you, you have a garden and you plant strawberries. <gasps> strawberries are delicious. I really like strawberries. Do you like strawberries? Yeah. Uh, and you go to pick the strawberries. You're really looking forward to strawberries. You're like, oh, I've been waiting so long for these strawberries. I planted a strawberry. I can't wait to eat this strawberry. And you go to pick the strawberry and your hand comes up with thorns. 
And the only red is what thorns bring forth. Or you plant cucumbers. Do you like cucumbers? Michael Lawrence loves cucumbers. He eats them by the fistful. I've never seen anything like it. You plant a cucumber, you think, oh, I cannot wait to feast on this juicy cucumber. But when you get close to pick the cucumber, it's a snake that bites you. And it's a sort of double treachery. Not only no strawberries and cucumbers, but thorns and snakes where there should have been strawberries, cucumbers. And it's heartbreaking. We see a similar ache in the book of Revelation. A loud voice asks, asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? They survey the entire ranks of creature that has ever existed. Heaven, earth, under the earth, and no one is worthy. There is no one good to be found. There should be. There's no one righteous to be found. There should be. What meets the eye as far as one can see are those who are good at evil. And John weeps. He weeps because there were none worthy to be found. We feel John's ache, don't we? The ache in the face of this treachery. We can start with our own heart. Left to our own selves, is there any godliness? Is there any righteousness? Or is it just selfishness? Evil, justified at every turn, because we're the exception. We can continue to look at the world left to itself. Are there any ripe figs full of life and delight? There are none, and it's heartbreaking. Woe is me, pronounces Micah. But praise be to God, Revelation 5 continues. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. There is one worthy. The root of David. Same image. The true vine. There is one who is good. There is one who has done good. There is one who is righteous. There is one who has done righteousness. The one who not only is life and wins life, but the one who gives life. The life that he is. The life that he wins. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the fig that Micah is yearning for. He is the fig that my soul is yearning for. He is the fig that your soul is yearning for. The first fruits of new creation. He's not just a good and righteous man. He is the best of men and more beside. True man, true God, the joy of every longing heart. And he's also the true vine. Such that he came to bring others to himself and engraft us into himself and thereby make us share in that all-satisfying life. Isn't that what he says in John 15? I am the vine. You are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. These figs, these grapes for which Micah is longing for. This vine that came, the Lord Jesus Christ, now supplies through himself. And by this wonderful union that we share with the Lord Jesus Christ, which we enjoy by faith, his life becomes ours and its fruits have already begun to appear in us. Now in part, in the life of faith, hope, love, love, joy, peace, patience, so on, so forth. Micah says, woe is me, I am hungry, I am thirsty for righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Beloved, this is what we gather to taste every week. We taste the only one who can satisfy and we are reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ is the first fruits and we are the harvest that is in his wake and that the day of gathering fruit is ongoing and will culminate in the day of feasting. And he has purchased its certainty with his blood and we are the evidence of its truth. But until this new creation is all in all, we continue to feel a sense of loneliness in this world. So second, we consider... Micah's loneliness. The loneliness of the opening picture, a lone figure in a garden of death, actually takes on a new depth and dimension in verses 5 and 6. Put not a trust in neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. When I lived in Ukraine, I remember feeling a loneliness that was palpable. And as I thought about it, I realized that the loneliness wasn't due to the absence of people. In fact, it was the presence of people that was actually exacerbating the loneliness. For the loneliness was due to an inability to communicate fully. A difficult to understand gulf that had opened up because of language and culture. And it was a perplexing ache surrounded by people, yet achingly alone. Perhaps you can relate. Micah brings us into an even more intense ache. For here the barrier wasn't language or culture, but treachery. The relationships which should have produced intimacy and friendship and fellowship, what we were made to enjoy as human beings, instead has produced betrayal. You can see how this is another angle on the garden of death. Not only no figs and grapes, but predators and thorns. Not only no companionship among friends and family, but treachery and betrayal. He says no relationship is safe. Friends and neighbors, husbands and wives, parents and children, all of them have been undone by this treachery. How has this happened? Because of the culture that has been set from the top. He surveys the ranks of Israel's leadership and he finds no faithful one. The word is chasid. 
from chesed. It's like the only Hebrew word most people know, right? How do you translate chesed? I don't know. <laughs> it means faithful one. It means covenant loyalty. He says there is no chesed living in chesed. There's no faithful one. There's no loyal one discharging the obligations of the covenant to God and to man. All of them break faith. All of them betray trust. And if that's the tone that's set from the top, is it any wonder that it's filtered down to the rank and file? And not only that, but it has worked its dreadful effects into the most basic bonds of loyalty that exist. Husband and wife, parents and children. The epitome of creation coming apart at the seams is children betraying parents. It's flipping creation upside down. It's the first commandment in the second table. If you want to ask yourself, is a society being undone? Just look at the younger generation's attitude to the older generation. Cormac McCarthy in No Country for Old Men essentially had it exactly right. Once they stop saying sir and ma'am, it's pretty much over for a culture. It's Cormac McCarthy. That's not the Bible. That's Cormac McCarthy, but he's spot on. It's exactly what Micah is lamenting here. But unless we indulge in a collective groan over the state of our culture, let's collectively groan first and foremost at our own treachery towards our Heavenly Father. For what return did we yield to him as his offspring before Christ rescued us? We tasted of his goodness, did we not? We tasted of his kindness, did we not? Did you experience the full pains of hell the moment you entered into this world? You did not. He was merciful. He was patient. He was kind. And what return did you make? Treachery. The children betraying the father. We make it even more sober. Even after coming to Christ, has anyone yielded unto the Lord the return of faithfulness of which he's worthy? I haven't. Have you? And it's worthy to be lamented. It's worthy to be mourned such that his faithfulness is magnified, which we'll get to in a moment. Look at all sorts of arenas. Look at the church. How often does the church break faith with one another? We make vows and we break them. We serve one another insofar as it suits us. We listen to what we like and we dismiss what we don't. Aren't these instances and many other besides all iterations of unfaithless breaking faith? Faithlessness breeds loneliness. And we're all complicit. Thanks be to God there's a faithful one. Thanks be to God that there is a non-treacherous son. The treachery of the children in verse 6 is the dark impress of the faithfulness of the beloved son. For he loved his father unto the end. He loved his neighbor unto the end. He loved them not in so far as it suited him or was convenient to him, but at the cost of his life. He was faithful unto death. Blessed be his name. And once again, we can see if faithless leaders breed a faithless 
culture, then a faithful leader breeds a faithful culture. And that's what is taking place in the church. This new household wrought in the bonds of blood that Christ shed, such that faithfulness is now displacing our former treacherous and faithless ways. Many of our families are broken due to sin, are they not? Many of our families are divided because of Christianity, are they not? And this creates a loneliness for us in this broken world. But God's family gathered here, out of the faithfulness of the Son, partakes of the Son's faithfulness. Such that a new way is forming among us. The younger honoring the older. Husbands cherishing their wives and praying for their sisters in the faith. Wives honoring their husbands and praying for their brothers in the faith. And the older saints among us striving to set an example of godliness that is fitting to their years. Christ's faithfulness beckons us on in faithfulness. It prompts us forward to keep faith as the one who has never broken faith and never will. And it's as this new household practices this faithfulness at cost that she bears a powerful witness to a crooked and faithless generation. So what can I exhort you to in the light of this? First, keep your vows. No church will ever be perfect. This church will never be perfect. This household and all true households will always have flaws. Some may diminish with time, some may not. But we do not remain faithful in the household because of the perfection of the household. We remain faithful in the household because of the perfection of the one over the household. Let this stir you up. Second, pray for one another. Encourage one another. Serve one another, not as something you might do if you get around to it, but as something vital to your Christian life. Start by praying and follow up by encouraging and serving. That's what family does for one another. Third, mark those among us who do not have family in this world and then work to bring them into the orbits of your family. And for those of us who do have families in this world, see that you do not neglect your duties to them, but also see that you do not neglect your duties to the household of God. One you are bound to by blood. One you are bound to by Christ's blood and vows taken before the Lord. These are to be taken seriously. For we are the family of heaven and the community of hope and light in a world of despair and darkness. So we can close by marking that the darkness does not overwhelm, but presents the beauty of the light. Last, Micah's light. What cause for hope did the prophet have? Why should he end as he does? What was it about his circumstances that led him to be encouraged? What was it about the barren land 
that prompted his heart to hope? Nothing. There was nothing in his circumstances. There was nothing in those around him that prompted him to hope. His hope rested on a single point, the God of promised salvation and belonging unto him. Notice that the prophet addresses himself first, exhorting his eyes unto the God of promise. Verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He's preaching a sermon to his own soul there, isn't he? He's stirring himself up. No, it is the Lord who is your hope. It's not this. This darkness will destroy. Look at the dissolving bands. It will drown me. Look at the state of my heart left to myself. He's about to say that he himself is in need of the forgiveness of sin. The Lord's prophet. The one who strove faithfully his whole man. Even he sees himself as a sinner. Understands himself to be a sinner. Knows his heart is a desert landscape left unto himself. He says, look at it all. None of it gives reason for hope. He's very much like Jacob in that climactic song in Genesis 49. He surveys the ranks of the lads, lions, snakes, wolves. This isn't good. This is the community of life. These are predators. How is life going to issue forth from these lads? So where does he look? He says, I wait for your salvation. He looks unto the one who has promised to bring forth good out of ill. He looks to the Lord and his promises. Because nothing needing the naked eye gave him any reason to hope. But the word landing upon an ear yielded hope. So he dresses himself, exhorts himself, and Micah's loneliness reaches a pitch here, does it not? He has to exhort himself to hope. <laughs> He's alone. The fact that he has to exhort himself to hope heightens the loneliness that has been seething throughout this whole portrait. But even still, despair does not take him. For even in the darkest moments of loneliness, God does not abandon him. The promise of Christ remains emblazoned upon his heart. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you if the world stands against you. And yet I am by your side. You have cause to rejoice and to stand in confidence. Other servants had been to this point of loneliness before. You think of Moses when Israel committed her apostasy with the calf. They all went astray. It was essentially Moses and Joshua that were left. Elijah on the mountain. Everybody's gone. They're all gone, Lord. Jeremiah in the mud. They're all gone, Lord. But there was one lonelier still. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who experienced the treachery that Micah envisions here. To the nth degree. Abandoned by friends. Betrayed by a friend. And yet for the joy set before Him, you, 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 He endured the cross. And on the other side of that cross, the resurrection and the community of hope. And thus our blessedness comes into view. How wonderful it is that we are not left to exhort ourselves to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the author of Hebrews say? Let us consider how to stir one another up unto love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another on all the more as you see the day drawing near. Usually I run alone. But early this summer I had the chance to run with my brother. I was struck by the new energy that this brought to the run. He'd push forward and that would push me. He'd fall back and I would exhort him on. And we finished together and delighted in the course together. I was strung, struck by the strength and the joy of two. There's much encouragement to be had from one another. Yes, we are a mess. You are a mess. I am a mess. But we belong to the Lord. And he has laid his hands upon us. And so as the community of hope, we prompt one another onward, saying, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. But you can notice also that Micah addresses the world. He closes in verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. Did you know that you speak a powerful word to the world when you gather for public worship week in and week out? Make no mistake, it is spoken, even if it is not heard. For when we gather in public worship, we declare in faith that no matter how dark things get, personally or publicly, no matter how difficult things get, no matter how widespread the dissolution, we can still declare truly and meaningfully and wonderfully, though we sit in darkness, Jesus Christ is our light. What a magnificent testimony of hope that is. You fall week by week. Sometimes plainly, sometimes subtly. You feel the darkness week by week. Sometimes acutely, sometimes less so. But each week the Lord summons us to bask in the light of the resurrection. The first day of the week. The light of new creation to declare our hope that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death. That Jesus Christ has conquered the world and this present darkness. That the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And whatever difficulty I face, he is Lord over it. And it will issue forth for me in life. Whatever difficulty my family faces, he is Lord over it. And it will issue forth for me in life. Whatever difficulty the world faces, he is Lord over it. And it will issue forth in life for the people of God. We may fall. We will fall. But we will rise. For Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. If you know him, this is your hope. If you do not, waste no time. Run to him this day and join yourself to the company of those who profess the light. For this present darkness is real. But there is a light and a life that has conquered 
and it is true hope and good. Let's pray. We give you thanks for good hope, O Lord. Sanctify this word unto us. Bring forth hearts that trust and delight seeing they worship. For you alone can do these things, Lord. Feed us by your word. Nourish us by it. Grow us by it. Sustain us by it. Preserve us by it until the day that Christ returns and faith becomes sight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.